It's Wednesday, June 8th. You're listening to the Tech Breakfast Podcast, the show that brings you delicious tech news and all the hot takes you can handle with Tyler Gates, Russ Cantwell, and Aaron Bewley. It's episode 256. Uh, Russ is on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico right now doing pirate things, I think he said. Uh, but today, joining myself and Tyler, we have Brandon DaCosta from Florida. And super excited to talk with him about cloud economics and a bunch of other just random stuff, probably. How's it going, guys? Welcome, Good. Brandon. Thank you. Welcome Thank you, guys. Good to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you on. And, and, and it's funny. Uh, I also read uh, Russ's communication this morning as him becoming a pirate. I didn't yes, read okay. that part, but I saw a pirate. <laughs> he said he was doing pirate things or something. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds exciting. Sounds fun. Very yeah. Exciting. And uh, so I guess to be clear for our listeners, Brandon, you work for VMware along with Tyler and myself, just so that way people aren't confused and maybe think that you work at a company called Cloud Economics or something. You do cloud <laughs> economic things at VMware, yes? That is correct. Yes. I uh, awesome. I joined VMware about almost a year ago. So July will be be a year. Uh, and prior to that, I was at, at Dell Technologies slash EMC for 10 so okay, um, I'm a newbie to VMware too. Not as newbie as you, Aaron, but uh, <laughs> still a newbie nonetheless. Oh man, oh man. Okay. Um, so typically, right at the beginning, we play a little game uh, called "Today's Yesterday in Tech History." No, "Yesterday and Today's Tech History." <laughs> is that what it is, Tyler? Yesterday and today. No, I think it's "Today's Yesterday in Tech History." <laughs> mm, I think it's I, "Yesterday's it's Today." It's in the tech other history. one. I can't. Remember. It's "Yesterday's Today." Okay. It's yesterday, uh, today in tech history. Mm, okay. Well, here we go. Um, and you have to guess the year. Both you guys. Got to guess the year. I have two of them this morning. I haven't read them at all. I don't know what we're about to get ourselves into. Let's see. So today's June 8th. We're going to look at June 7th. This one's called Really Geeky Modem Technology Patented. So June 7th, you guess the year. Michael Eaton is granted a patent for the AT command set for modems which had created a standard language for interacting with modems. Two years earlier, the rights for this command set were purchased by the Hayes Corporation and incorporated into the Hayes Smart Modem 300 as the Hayes command set. The protocol will become an industry standard used for years to come. What do you think? Give me a stab. 300? I don't, I mean, I remember Hayes as a company and I remember, I mean, I got to assume that's 300 baud. So I'm going to go like 77. Okay. Wow. Um, man, I was going to say like 83, somewhere in there. In the eight, Dude, you nailed it. Good year. It's 1983. Year. Is it really? <laughs> you got it. Oh, yes. that's awesome. You know what? That actually makes sense. I was going back from like my birth date, which is 83. Um, but because uh, I was thinking like, well, shoot, I had a 9,600 baud modem and you got to have a couple of generations there. But obviously I remember nothing from like the first six years of my life. So <laughs> mistakes were made. Great guess, man. That is, that's funny. 83. Yeah, that's crazy. I wonder how well many done. of our okay. listeners actually use the modem. That's just, that's what's funny about it. You actually had to use one. I did. Yeah, you did. Okay. I well, didn't. Yeah. Yep. I did. <laughs> I did. Um, all right. A modem beauty. No, I have a I have used a modem, like a but dial-up? not one of these modems. Oh, I never had a haze, I don't think. I, I honestly Bro, don't think you and I were friends. I know that's why I was so when confused. I moved from yeah, when I moved to DSL. Remember that? <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I was like, oh, dude, man. the page loads like before I even click on the link. It's incredible. That. You actually got through to people on their phone lines because they weren't on <laughs> they weren't online on their modem. Yeah. On their, that that on was their not phone. my life. I was still on a <laughs> dial up modem when he got DSL, and I never had a second line in my house. So there was a common disconnect because you know people actually needed to use the phone and downloading yeah. that song for a week really just didn't float well with my parents for a week. <laughs> <laughs> all right here's the other one the breakup of microsoft that never happened june 7th you got to tell me the year united states district judge thomas penfield jackson orders the breakup of microsoft into two companies one that will develop operating systems and one that will develop other applications. Microsoft immediately announces that it will file an appeal of the judgment. What would have been a monumental event in the history of the technology industry never actually happens, however. The ruling is overturned just over a year later. Microsoft will be sanctioned, but it stays one company. What year is this? I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Yeah. I'll say... Go ahead, Tyler. You go first. Oh, go ahead, Brandon. I'm just going to throw something random out. But I'm thinking like 90, 94, 95. Yeah, I was I was thinking late 90s too. Like 90, 98. I'm going 98. Final answers? That's it. That's all I got. Okay, 2000. 2000. Oh, wow. Very nice. Wow. You guys were close within striking distance. Very nice. Very good. You got the right century. I didn't, I didn't realize that actually happened, to be honest. That's a good... Uh, wait, I guess you didn't get fact. the right century. No, we does did the not. century change whenever it hits the the thousand? Or does it change whenever yeah. it goes into the it's, one? It's a millennium as well. Oh. I've seen people seen argue that, that, though. Yeah, I have seen that argued. Which um, which century does the does the year land in? You know, the, 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 the zero or whatever. <laughs> anyway, whatever. We're in the 21st century. We're going to go with right? the 2000. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I think I don't know. I've seen it argued two different. I don't ways. like that argument. It's nonsense. It's like hitting. It's like hitting ten, and is then it, you start. Is this the, next the argument that they, there wasn't one. a zeroth year? Right. So I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So You're the right. the century would include the hitting the hundredth year, ah. and then the next century would start on the one or something like that. Which one? Yeah. Whatever. whatever. That's why. That's why I learned it. But. I don't feel as strongly about this as I did about doors and uh, wheels. <laughs> <laughs> okay i gotta ask brandon that one we are not spending we are not spending more than 30 seconds on this though <laughs> brandon how What's many that? so so <laughs> which do you think there are more of in the world doors or wheels and i don't know the answer nobody does or can know the answer tyler's pretty convinced he knows the answer russ is pretty convinced he knows the answer and it's the opposite <clears throat> and i think they're both insane so <laughs> this sounds like a great like fermi interview question for somebody to try and try and figure out um yeah it's hmm. really interesting and i would it's uh, an interesting way to dig into someone's mind i would have to say doors to be honest just my 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 thought um just if you know my mind just thinking that if you look at any 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 single family residence you've got multiple doors inside that that the house or entryways versus and cabinets vehicles right stuff right? like that yeah so uh, yeah Man. cabinets doors so I mean, my, we, my we mom spent think, a lot of time with things doors <laughs> i argue that all bearings are wheels and if all bearings are wheels then all your drawers have many of them 
all, yeah. your, uh, all your chairs <laughs> often have that. That's too. an interesting argument, Tyler. I don't like I think mm. people people go to cars because they think, oh, that kind of wheel. But really, we got wheels everywhere. And then if gears are also wheels, all your, most of your old clocks, uh, almost any hinge, almost not all, but uh, I think I think there are a lot more wheels just on bearings alone. Mm. Yep. So we're gonna. I'm gonna immediately pull us out of that. But an interesting thought. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not dwell um, there. What, what we was your take? 25, what 30 was your take minutes. On it. What was your investment take on that? My my take was that I think people that were convinced one way or another, they sounded they sounded uh, they sounded too sure of themselves because I could think of uh, you know a plethora of other things on the other side of it. But I but Tyler's argument about bearings and gears is pretty convincing. It's pretty convincing. Yeah, I think if yeah, I guess if you if you dive that level down, yeah, it does add a different angle to the mm-hmm. to the discussion yeah. and argument for sure. Yeah, so, I started okay. to try yeah, to think like, of another like way of most defining of those doors, crazy though. ones. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I think like <laughs> most of those that. questions, if yeah. if you don't create some kind of boundary at some point, like I mean, yeah, somebody could make an argument that something absolutely isn't a door that could be like keyboard keys. Those could be doors, right? Lots of keyboard keys, but I mean, that's not a door, yeah. by the way. But what about right, like the you know extension uh, or uh, surge protectors that have the sliding gates for outlets? Oh, gates! Mm. Yes. Mm. Mm, are, gates are gates in general doors? Yeah, like a light switch. Day, yeah? Is a light that's switch true. a door? Dude, see, that's what yeah, I'm saying. I'm, there's something. There's something on that side. Of the just, you you got it. You got to draw the line somewhere. I don't like what in that we got into that. Like what, what defines a door? And then I feel like I can answer this question more confidently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I like the open ended though. It was real. It is kind of cool to see how people reason through some of this stuff. That's, uh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. No, that's cool. A good one. Well, dude. Um, so thanks for playing a uh, little warm up games with us here. Uh, do you w- do you prefer do you rather talk about some of the cloud economics stuff and just kind of dive into thing, you know you you spent yeah. some time with me earlier this week on that, uh, or would sure. you rather talk about tech news or what 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 route do you want to? Hey, take? I'm, this is just awesome to be here. You guys, whatever you guys were up for this morning, I'm game. So you you tell me yeah. what you guys like to talk about. Well, I mean, I Tyler, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you'd probably like to hear some of the cloud economics stuff. Absolutely. Super relevant yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, you, cool. me, so the, the three of us chat on Telegram all the time, and that's what ended up becoming this podcast, right? Um, and then we created a, the community that you also joined um, last night, the TBP community, which is you know the, the three of us plus listeners of the podcast as well. Um, but, but Tyler, Russ, and I were talking the other day within the Telegram, within just our private three-person one the other day about some of the cloud economic stuff. But we were sharing... Uh, talking through some numbers that you know kind of aren't really publicly allowed to to be talked about, but right, it's super interesting to see the adoption of it, right? Because yeah. just coming over, I'm learning about a lot of the different things that are happening within VMware, and I see a lot of VMC on AWS um, as as pieces of solutions, as um, as um, you know, high focus areas, and all that kind of stuff. And then that sparked the conversation between the three of us of you know, hey, Russ, how often are you seeing this? Russ works for SHI. I don't know if you know that. He's one of their yep. uh, their CTOs. Yep. Okay, perfect. Yep. Um, so he's also very familiar with it. But, um, you know, I just really started diving into it last week. And again, thank you for the time on that. But um, yeah, if you can share your perspective, that'd be 
fantastic. Yeah, no, <clears throat> you know, I think, you know, cloud economics, you know, kind of sounds like a buzzword, but, but in reality to me, part of what always interested me in, you know, obviously we're all technologists, right? We have our own kind of domains. I, I grew up in the networking uh, era, right? So I was a, you know, big networking guy, you know, learned, learned virtualization, jumped on the VMware train back in the day as well. And uh, so, so for me, part of it was as, as I, I love the technology, but, you know, as I was supporting opportunities and working in pre-sales as an engineer, you know, inevitably, you know, for all of us, it comes down to to cost, right? And, and the financial aspect of, of the deal. And and so for me, I kind of got pulled into more and more of those conversations just out of interest and in realizing like, you know, hey, uh, you, the, the technical win is important and you want to make sure the, the functionality is going to support the objective. Uh, but then, you know, tying tying that to the business value was always of interest to me. So, so for me, cloud economics is kind of just more of that intersection of technology and business, and being able to kind of, you know, to prove what you're positioning in, you know, in a business context. So, so that's kind of how I, I look at cloud economics. It's you know, may you may ask somebody else, they may define it differently, but for me, that's kind of what's always intrigued me about it. So at Dell. Uh, working in the alliances organization with uh, with partners, you know, SPs and SIs and SOs, you know, kind of drilling down into, you know, what are the economics of these of these large acquisitions of technology, right, for their for their business. Um, and so for me, that's kind of part of it. You know, to me, numbers numbers don't lie. I think as as you and I talked about, Aaron, you know, a lot of it is you go through the numbers, and sometimes depending on different scenarios, the numbers don't you know, don't work out. And I think there's validity and making sure that that's called out too, right? Whenever something doesn't necessarily uh, map out financially, even though it may technically work, may not fit the business model. So, so for me, that's what's always kind of been numbers don't lie. Let's, let's just kind of do an assessment, figure out where you're at. And, you know, our team's done quite, you know, a number of these and, uh, and overall, I think the numbers usually prove out, you know, uh, net positive for, you know, for moving to uh, to a VMC on, you know, solution. So, it's kind of my 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 pitch, but without getting into any the nitty gritty details, that's kind of what I've seen across not just VMC and AWS, but the other hyperscaler solutions as well. Um, in fact, if anyone wants to see some of the numbers, we have some infographics posted on on VMware.com, right under the, the apps and cloud section. So, some, just some some good it, stuff to check out there. It, it's it's funny that you say that, right? Um, that, that you've done a lot of the analysis. I mean, obviously, it's your function um, to to kind of go through this, but that you're seeing benefit regularly. I I've done the same kind of outside of our cloud economics group. Um, it was just an initiative that got started earlier, um, as as your organization was maturing in VMware, and we ended up getting getting to a very very intimate state with one of my customers in the to the point that you know we sort of had every sort of chip on the table regarded to regarding on-premises spend compared to you know an appropriately sized environment right and russ and i were actually arguing about this the other day because russ as a partner goes through a lot of these too i'm kind of curious yeah. um because I'm, I'm guessing you've done an awful lot more of these than i have um what what do you see customers or or environments you know regardless of status of, of the company that you're kind of working with is to you what, what do you see them missing in the analysis that maybe has a dramatic impact or even if it's not dramatic, what, what's sort of the, the chip pile, if you will, to, to continue that metaphor of the costs associated with operating on-premises compared to, um, you know, sort of a consolidated VM on 
hyperscaler option? Yeah, no, great, great question, Tyler. I think so. What I've seen oftentimes is almost you know, there's first of all, there's a compelling event, right? So there's usually a compelling event, which is why we're even having the discussion, right? So kind of looking at the compelling event, if there's a time frame associated with it, uh, for instance, you know, contractual you know, um, obligations for data center or colo or something like that. So they're looking to kind of figure out if they're going to re-up that or they're going to, they have to leave it, whatever. So take that compelling event and kind of work backwards. And I think a lot of times what I've noticed in the analyses is, is really when you, when you lay it side by side, when you're moving to a cloud-based subscription model, right, you immediately then eliminate facilities costs, right? Um, and then I think, it, and just beyond just CapEx purchases, right? There's just obviously the maintenance of, of the physical infrastructure, which is, incurs, you know, labor costs. Um, are, are things I notice side by side immediately are kind of eliminated when you move to a subscription-based service. Um, so for me, a big part of it is, is really just the, the facilities, the maintenance of the actual infrastructure, but also too, um, a lot of times it's also about right sizing, right? You know, so to me, even if you were to look at the can you continuing to acquire infrastructure to support the environment, um, oftentimes, as we know, you know, there's over provisioning that's been done. Um, so when you kind of right size that, uh, oftentimes the economics typically work out in the you know in our favor because you know now you're kind of getting more density, you're more consolidating um, the environment. And you're getting rid of, of the facilities costs and optimizing your labor is, is really what I've seen in most of the analysis that, that we've looked at. Plus, the other half of it is if you're if you're just refactoring your applications, right? So I think the adjacency play, to be to be honest, is a big one for all the hyperscalers. So each of them are, you know, have great native services, right? AWS, Google, Oracle. Um, and if if any of the customers already are using those things and looking to kind of leverage the native services, they don't necessarily want to refactor all their stuff. And I think the or, the or even if they that, do, doesn't mean they're going to get there overnight. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So so to me, part of it is that you know the adjacency play is nice because you don't have to worry about refactoring everything. However, you can then take advantage of the uh, you know the proximity, right? So your performance is better. And then you can decide what you know what you want to do at some point, you know, without the headache of acquiring more technology on prem and all that kind of stuff. So, so to me, that's not so 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 facilities, optimized labor, density, consolidation, and then just the the migration costs, right? We've got some customers who are, you know, I'm sure as you know, uh, Tyler, take it takes a long time to migrate into any native public cloud or refactor the application. So so that time, there's a cost to that too, right? You'd be paying for two environments and, and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, those those bubble costs, as, as I was educated on, are are considerable yeah. as well. So the longer it takes you to get there, the the more expensive the entire motion can be, and that's that's yeah. true of even going to a, a native um, landing point um, in general. Just straddling both a a native cloud or, or a hyperscaler adoptive point and maintaining on-prem data centers over that period of time is, is effectively double for a lot of cases, um, yep, depending on how exactly quickly right. you can, can change stuff. I've also seen, um, and, and I haven't dug into this enough because there's sort of a natural progression to these uh, sorts of conversations, or at least in my case, they have been natural this way. But um, in, in environments where 
my customers aren't going through the full-fledged you know modernization of an application whether that's a complete you know rewrite scrap use something else or or just even breaking it into more useful components, microservice sort of oriented um, application development to take it into a hyperscalers environment. Um, what I'm starting to see is the cost of um, applications that don't really scale up and down. Um, you, you can sort of, you can reap the same benefit that we did 20 years ago when virtualization first you know, struck the market, which is you can take advantage of a a quote physical asset in this case it's a virtualized physical asset it's a managed service right infrastructure but but you as the consumer can smash as many of those systems into that sort of physical box or virtual box um whereas in a in the current sort of hyperscaler environment the instant size that you get for a machine that isn't going to change its consumption, scaling up or down, or being able to be turned off at certain points in time, so bursty loads, those those benefits are actually going to the hyperscaler. They're, yep. they're getting to take advantage of consolidation ratios because you have purchased a t-shirt size, and if you never turn it off or never change the number associated with an application because it wasn't designed to scale that way, you're, you're probably spending more than you would in a virtualized vir- VMware virtualized environment in the same hyperscaler, which which was really surprising the first time I saw it um, until I kind of thought through that logical outlay. Well, wait, I can take this many T-shirt sizes and I can effectively oversubscribe, maintain performance because that's actually what vSphere is very good at. In, yep. in a vSphere with hyperscaler solution. Um, it, it actually, it, that emboldened me a lot just for the future of those platforms, um, the, the VMware Cloud On or the, you know, X VMware solutions. Um, because I think as long as, as there are workloads that aren't ephemeral or aren't scaling with, you know, real attention to native refactoring, I, I believe there will be opportunity to just save cost, so cost takeout compared to cloud native, um, and that completely ignores the potential benefit of having something that's portable between clouds. Which don't get me wrong, that's that is a huge and and non-trivial effort. Even if you were just to take it from A to B, the fact that you can gives you some latitude. How much value? Is in that I think to be seen personally, but I see a lot of value in being able to extract that consolidation ratio without sacrificing performance or availability for a lot of stuff. So, yeah, no, hundred percent agree with you. And, that, and that's what I kind of was leaning towards with regards to consolidation and density is exactly yeah. what you just said, right? Is that kind of you know, I mean, just, like I said, just be honest. The the this oversubscription um, and the value to the customer is shown in the in the economics, the payback, right? And, and the cost, mm-hmm. like you said, the cost takeout versus for the hyperscaler, that's just extra margin on their side. They don't right, necessarily right. pass it along to, to the end user, like you said, based on the t-shirt size they've subscribed to. So um, 100%, that's a huge part of it. Um, and, and I think too, I will, I want to say this as well, like part of what I, you know, in economics, we, we make sure it's, it's not, we don't look at the hyperscalers as, you know, the enemy necessarily, right? We, 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 these solutions have been built to be co-engineered with, <laughs> with them. Right. So, so the value Absolutely. is, yeah, you're, the value is you're really kind of leveraging the best of both worlds in that flexibility, you know, some of the, the, the lower economics, but then taking advantage of all those native services. 
um, I think is also is pretty cool as well, right? So I think the value is you can optimize where you need to, um, and then you know fit into your strategy, you know, for the go forward plan. So what? Yeah. So quick question on. Obviously, it's not likely to be cost beneficial to all customers. And you touched a little bit on the type of customers we're moving to a VMC on X. Uh, you know, specifically, we're talking about VMC on AWS there uh, a little bit, and the you know the access to native features and all that kind of stuff. But so that's kind of that covers kind of type of customer. Um, what are the typical sizes of customers where we're finding that this is cost beneficial? Um, because it's clearly working and I, I don't, I'm probably not allowed to say how many customers, but it is a lot of customers It is not a small yeah. number, um, that have moved to v, uh, VMware cloud on AWS, VMC on AWS. Yeah. What are, where, where are we, where, where are these deals making the most sense from the size? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I'll let Tyler jump in as well. I think for, for me on the economic side, obviously, um, you know, you look at just a minimum entry point, at least for most of the of the hyperscaler solutions, is at least three, you know, three hosts, right? So, um, you know, there's some there's some tie-in to vSAN requirements and things like that, at least initially. You know, so depending on you know where that lands from a uh, a perspective of size for a company, you know, in some cases it may may not be advantageous per se upfront to, to dive in unless there's some growth potential or some you know some optimization that can take place in the future the reality is that at least the three the three hosts so you know uh, the analysis we've done on some of the deals for instance on one of the hyperscalers the average number of vms that that we've been looking at on some of these these solutions is like three thousand <laughs> right so okay. so obviously they're you know probably a little bit larger you know mid-size to enterprise level um size but on some of the other ones, it's like 800 VMs. So, so I think the key is really just, I would say probably the sweet spot would be between, you know, I'd say, um, you know, 300 to, to 500 VMs entry point, which, you know, fits a good size, you know, kind of market, uh, market, you know, out there. So that's my thought is really just more of the minimum requirements just to kind of look at the cost, um, you know, for, for the solution. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and what you showed and, me too was, yeah, go ahead, Tyler. Okay. Well, all, I was going to say was with uh, what Brandon was showing me the other day, when you have a company that has that um, size, that, you know, that type of amount of resources, I guess, that need a, need a home, right? We're trying to do the economics on. It's an overwhelmingly smart decision to look at this, to consider it, um, because it yeah. was, you know, Brandon is showing me and he's like, you know, you it's this and this and this and this, right? And oftentimes when you look at it and you're doing TCO analysis or something, it's like, oh, we could save you 15% over 30 years or something or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's this really, it's like this thin thing that's drawn out really long. Um, but no, yeah, this sure. is like immediate and um, massive. And take out, say you disagree with any one of the, the components, fine, take one or two of them out. It's still a compelling yeah. decision, uh, which is yeah. which and was surprising. And that's what I was, I was going to kind of say is that it, what, what I've seen now, I, I only work with customers that have many thousands of VMs. I, I don't have the SWAT that I did when I was a vSAN SE, you know, looking kind of at all corners of the market. But what I've noticed in my account set and then my peers account sets, because we obviously do a lot of, uh, you know, sort of peer review and, and discussion internally, is that um, if you're if you're looking at like a full-blown data center evacuation where you can completely get out of the business of either paying co-location costs, um, if you can get out of the business of having recurring even on longer timeline 
capital costs associated with compute and network and storage. And I mean, if you're operating your own data center as opposed to renting space in somebody else's, you've also got recurring costs eventually for upgrades that have to be done, stuff like cooling systems, things like um, uh, just environmental safety systems. There's there's a lot of uh, costs associated with that that tends to be on a, a longer horizon for the sort of refresh cycle. But um, the, if you're looking at, at holistically getting out of a geographic location, um, I've seen those economics work out quite well. And then on, on the smaller end of the spectrum, uh, where I've started to see customers adopt uh, these solutions are either specific to licensing. So a, a particular use case that has come up more and more lately is actually um, <laughs> unsurprisingly things like Microsoft licensing in AWS natively. Um, that can yeah. get really hairy really fast. It can get very can. expensive as well. Um, we we actually end up being able to provide a safe haven for Microsoft licenses in AWS via VMC on AWS. Um, and so I've started to see that happen more. And uh, it often kind of coupled with that is that that right now in, in AWS specifically, and I know there, there's a, it, it's going to differ from cloud to cloud, but this tends to be pretty consistent. Um, the, the hosts, right, uh, Brandon mentioned it, they're built on vSAN. Um, vSAN is a, you know, a tier zero, a tier one uh, storage platform. So it's highly available. It's highly scalable. It's, it's very snappy. It's also the only 100% NVMe storage solution available in most of the hyperscalers right now. So yeah, if you have right. a very storage, I did not know that. sensitive. Yeah. Well, this, yeah. I actually learned, learned this from a partner we work with. Um, it was, it was a point that they highlighted that it's just a few months ago, months ago that I learned it. I know, I know this to be true for, uh, AWS, I believe it is true for Oracle's cloud. I believe it is true for um, Azure and Google as well, but I'm not 100% because I know a little bit less about their detailed offerings. But um, so if, if you have an application that is very storage performance sensitive, a VMC on or a, a VMware solution with our hyperscalers could actually be a very elegant solution to that. That, to Brandon's point, maintains that adjacency to what you're trying to accomplish in, in the broader scheme of things. Um, and, and in my experience, that that broader strategy really is about moving applications forward. Um, so it, it may not be a permanent resting place for everything, which is fine, but these tend to be you know, as a service offerings. You move there, you do your refactoring, you take something to native, and then you sort of attrit those workloads. I think, like I said before, there, there will actually end up being some pretty good economic reasons to stick around for some workloads, uh, perhaps even indefinitely. Mm -hmm. um, and then depending on how VMware's application strategy really cohesifies itself, I, that's not even a word. <laughs> cohesifies. As, as it gels, <laughs> as it gels, as it becomes more, it is quite possible that there will be opportunities to refactor applications and still patriate them into those environments that see economic benefit. Because at the end of the day, I think maybe even to be critical to sort of VMware's ecosystem, there there's going to be environments that look a lot like mainframe in the sense that, yeah, you'd like to get out of there, but you can't, right? And that, that sounds like a really crappy reason to stick around with a technology. But if, <laughs> yeah. if you can get the benefits of hyperscaler adoption, the benefits of cloud adoption, which are very real and most most customers are starting to recognize, uh, you know, the the kind of and on benefits of, of adoption in that regard. 
and you have applications that won't ever let you get off of vSphere in that case, or at least not for a, a long time, this is a very economic way to continue to sort of give them the, the TLC without you needing staff to do the TLC. Um, and so, yeah. so there's, I think there's going to be some of that too. I, I hope it leans the other way. I hope it ends up being more strategic and that there are, are continued opportunities to actually take advantage of the benefits that it brings, but also move yourself forward as opposed to, well, I can't put it anywhere else. So I'll put it here, but both are valid right now. So, yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you Tyler on that. I think that's just, you know, I think the, <clears throat> Right now, unfortunately, like a lot of companies that were like cloud first or cloud fit, and I gotta, I gotta make some moves, and they have these initiatives. I think realize that at some point that that process may take longer than they expected, and then the end result is you've you may have had to refactor stuff that didn't didn't need to be, or like you said, just they've got to keep around, or it's really difficult to do that. But they're spending the money and time to do it, and then and then now now they're in one cloud, and I think the. To be honest, I think the other value is, you know, kind of where the VMware cloud comes in is if you want to pull back to on-prem for any other any reason, you can do that fairly quickly. And and then same thing if if down the line the market really kind of uh, you know and the the ability obviously we're talking like future stuff, but just kind of back to my MPLS traffic engineering days. If you're routing traffic based on cost from your tier one provider. How cool would it be to be able to kind of move workloads around? We used to say follow the sun, but what if you're trying to follow the, you know, the cheapest cost per an instance mm -hmm. that fits your requirements, right? Now you can move between, you know, or just have pockets of of instances where they're adjacent to the applications they need, you know, natively to be close to. So I think the flexibility is also something, like you said, down the line, whether it's strategic or or just based on cost. I think there's some really cool cool stuff i think we can we can lean in on down the road yeah that's that's part of the multi-cloud holy grail right there what you're describing it is, yeah so yep, do you 100%. have some, i'm super curious about the customer base um and the people that are making these decisions that you're, that you're talking to do you have anyone and i imagine the answer is yes kind of a leading question i guess but do you have anyone that's spinning it up as a test dev or like they move non-critical things there into vmc on aws or vmc on x whatever um, to, to cost compare and see if they really believe what you're saying or it's just to kind of put the toe in the water. That's how it was when vSAN started, right? They're like, what do sure. I do? Do I just move it all in there? I'm like, well, let's start with like, <laughs> you know, let's start yeah. with a little bit. Let's put our toe in the water here and um, let's move some apps over here, non-critical things, and so you can get familiar with it. And then you're just going to want to use it more and more and more. Um, do you see this there as well? All the time. Yeah, I, I do. I'm, you know, I'm sure Tyler deals with customers as well. But yeah, I, I do is, you know, for, for a lot of the opportunities, in fact, the the teams are doing either either, you know, a, a paid pilot or or just kind of a, you know, a limited engagement where, you know, let's set up, you know, the, the you know, the environment, let's get HCX configured. You can just you can do this. We'll show you how to do this. <laughs> you, you move this kind of cool V motion magic, right. You know, from your environment to, to the cloud and just do some tests, see how long it takes, you know, so there definitely is this component of, of trying to trying before they assimilate into the environment. But I see it all the time on across all the hyperscalers. In fact, not just VMC to WS. I see that yeah. uh, like on OCVS as well. Uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah. There's a big portion of customers who definitely do that first for sure. And then when you're having these conversations right out of the gate with, you know, sizing and TCO and comparison and all that kind of stuff, 
Is there is there an aspect of the conversation? I don't know how well you would put a dollar amount to it, but factoring in things like uh, reliability and uptime, and um, it, it could be a it could maybe be a sensitive topic if you're if you're maybe challenging, you know, the the on prem equipment that they built and run in terms of an uptime and reliability perspective, but right, is right. that part of the conversation or does that even yeah. need to be part of the conversation? Um, are they relieved we, uh, to not have to think about that or, you know what I mean? We, so our model that we built has like over 175 assumptions in it. Right. Um, which okay. is a lot, but at the same yeah. time, what we find is that as we get, as we get data, as we gather data, we, we fine-tune it as much as we can. And then a lot of that discussion, Aaron, comes as we're going through the through the model, right? And I, I personally find that as we go through the numbers and we, we, we throw in things. So, for instance, if you're looking at going from, you know, on-premises to VMC or VMC, you know, compared to native, we do have factors in there for, for downtime, specifically on, you know, looking at the complexity around, how many apps are you know medium to to heavy with regards to refactoring, like as far as hours and level of effort, and then the potential for human error or you know things to happen where those apps could be offline. We actually have a placeholder in our model for for downtime costs, right? And it could be, and, and once again, it's a little bit more abstract because it's very hard for a lot of people to tell you, you know, for every hour this business or you know, this app's unavailable, it costs the business X. But we have a, we do have a placeholder in there for it, and we, we it, it becomes a point of conversation. Uh, and then as as we go through, and they say, well, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to look at that, take that out. We like you said, we we just remove it. But it is extra things to kind of just be mindful of. That for us, the value is, hey, listen, you're <laughs> this is as seamless transition as possible, right? To go to mm-hmm. your your environment to the cloud for from a VMware cloud perspective. Um, but going native is a little bit more challenging potentially, right? And to your point on the other side, we don't, I really haven't had many from an on, on-premises perspective for downtime, but the assumption and the variable is still in the model. So we could still have that as part of the conversation. Um, but it is there. It is something we definitely at least highlight uh, from a migration standpoint. Okay, cool, man. Yep. Well, it's fascinating stuff there. Um, you know, Tyler, I don't know if you have any other questions, but before we run out of time, I was hoping to dig into a little bit more about you and about things that you are interested in uh, tech related outside of just cloud economics stuff. So I don't, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say about, um, you know, what we've been talking about here or Tyler, if you have any other questions. No, I don't have any other questions, Brandon. You and I should definitely sync up at some point here in the near future because I'd, I'd like to compare all of the little data points that were collected for a, a motion that I had for one of my customers to some of the assumptions that are underneath the covers. If you know most of those, you know, by heart, it'd be really neat to see if we missed anything or if we captured stuff that was uh, sure. not on the list already. Yeah, I, I told Aaron, is a plug internally at VMware is, you know, you're 30% more likely to close your opportunity if, you know, if you engage cloud economics, just because we're able to kind of, <laughs> right? That's, that's our little our little tagline. Um, yeah. But yeah, be glad, be glad to do that. We even do reverse TCOs, right? So after, sure. you know, kind of after something's been sold, we can go back and look to see if we're hitting the markers that, that you know, we told them they would at, at the beginning. So sure. be Very glad good. to, Tyler, anytime. 
And there's a link too uh, that I, I posted on Twitter the other day. Uh, I, I don't know if you point people here or if you prefer to use something else or whatever, but vmware.valuestoryapp.com. Uh, I don't know if you have to put in the yep. slash VMware cloud after that. Let me yep. see how the URL works. But it looks like, sorry. Yeah, that's kind of an uh, initial kind of high level uh, you know, TCO analysis. And then you can request to get to our team from that. From yeah. That app. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I'll read that again at vmware.valuestoryapp.com slash VMware cloud has to be that full That's thing. It. And then you can get to the, to the uh, TCO calculator. Very cool. Thank okay. You. What else is, yeah, man, dude, so happy you can uh, join us today. Um, what else are you interested in tech wise? Are you into like batteries or solar power or space or electric vehicles or circuitry or what do you, what do you do? What are you interested in? <laughs> is is that for Tyler or for me, Aaron? It's no, for you. Knows, I know everything about my Tyler. Answers. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler and I have been friends for 25 years. Uh, so, Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I so I uh, don't have an EV yet. I'm I'm kind of in the market. I'm looking. Um, I've got I've got three kids, and um, two of them are are of driving age at this point. So. Uh, yeah, so I'll put a GoFundMe link up for paying for it for, for, yeah, for teenage drivers. Um, but, but EVs, I think, are definitely something I'm I'm intrigued by. I'm I'm still kind of looking around to see you know which ones it make the most sense economically and just kind of just ha- how things have evolved over time. So EVs are definitely something on my on my radar. And I was even looking at you know, living in Florida, the Tesla, you know, the the tiled roof, right, for the solar. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, just to kind of see if that was a, an option down here too. So wow. yeah, I, I, I love tech. I, I, I have not gone to the extent. Maybe I'm. It's maybe it's kind of blasphemous, I guess, in our industry. But I, I haven't gone the full, um, you know, smart home necessarily. Where I've got Alexas everywhere and all that stuff just yet. I just haven't. I just haven't done it yet. I just. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I haven't gone that that far down the rabbit hole yet. But for me, at least. I'm but waiting to be it. sitting in like a doctor's office or something and somebody just yells, <laughs> yells Alexa, what time is it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Trigger the one in my room yeah. here. That's no, fun. but I, I do. Uh, uh, so as far as anything else, techie wise, you know, I've got a tinker with stuff at the, you know, the kind of a home lab type stuff uh, just to keep, just to keep on top of things. Um, I'm a big sports guy. So when I do get time, you know, I, I do, I do play a lot of sports when I can. So my body's, you know, still paying for when I beat up when I was younger, but I still love playing when, when I can. So, so man, we could take this a number of different ways. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing any, um, you know, tech advances in whatever sports, you know, you're playing. That's something we haven't really talked about a lot on the, on the show. Um, let's see. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a basketball, I play basketball. Uh, okay. And I really, you know, just beyond just some of the, you know, equipment, right? Just to kind of, there's not too much mm-hmm. yet I've seen on the basketball side, football for sure. Yeah. But not, not basketball. I've seen yeah. some ads for like um, these, these just goofy looking smart basketball apps mm-hmm. where you like you <laughs> dribble drills in front of a, like an iPad or something. To me, that seems like hokey as all get out. Like, <laughs> just get out there and dribble a basketball. You don't just need play. this. Yeah. You don't need this, you know, hyper, um, you know, reflective basketball that an app can see with some, you know, AI 
trying to track how you're dribbling, just dribble the dang basketball and go out there with. I want to agree <laughs> with you, but I feel like if I owned uh, hyper shiny basketballs, that I would strongly disagree with you. Nah, I got, I got something to sell you, buddy. Yeah, it's oh, oh is, you can you can you think bundle of- it with Air Jordans. Both of these things will make you better at basketball, and they cost more. <laughs> Nailed um, it. The- yes. The shoes are proven. Yes, jump higher, run faster. Shoes are proven. Same, same uh, thing. You just got to give it time. Okay, well, move, move to the, move to like the, um, the, the spectator side of it. What are your thoughts on things like um, uh, also approved virtual reality basketball. attendance for sporting events, like the NBA finals are going on right now? Would yeah, you rather? Yeah. Are you are you the type of person that's going to um, just watch it on the TV or like on a phone, you know, in the kitchen because nobody else in your house cares about it and it's just annoying people? Or if they have the ability, you throw on your Oculus too, and now you're in the arena, right? You you have a front row seat. You can look all around. You're watching them run by. I don't know if that exists yet. I think they're working on it. But does is that intriguing that. to you? Yeah. Um, you know, I would try it for sure. Yeah, I would love to just kind of see what the experience. I think they tried that during the bubble for the NBA Finals. I thought they did something like that where they were trying to. to yeah, they had the like fans. people on Zoom in the background. Yeah, so yeah. Like the wall yes. behind there was like a wall behind yep. the the court where you could see people digitally. You know, but it was right. just like their face, and it was kind of strange to me. I don't know; it was a little weird. Yeah, it, it was a little strange. Exactly. But didn't um, didn't we have NBA Finals last year? Like, when will it end? <laughs> <laughs> new champion every year yeah, that's right <laughs> every, every, every year. when will they figure out who the best team is? <laughs> you're one and done Tyler. that's it once you win you're that's it no more no more finals goat yeah uh they, well they started it in 1946 and they haven't figured it out yet so it's probably gonna be right for a while. Still, still i mean my, my family is the boys are game you know they, they love ball too so so typically it's on in the house i i would probably try it aaron just to just, just you know, to see how that experience would look. But I'm a little bit old school. I'll either watch it or I'll try and go to the game myself. Like we were trying to get, yeah. if the Heat had had actually made it one more game and gotten into the finals, we would have probably tried to go to a game in person. You know, down yeah, down in the stadium. Yeah, so there's nothing I'm like a that, old man. School that way. Yeah, yeah, well, there was there were all these people that were coming out saying, "Oh, if we start doing that, then no no fans are going to go to the arena to watch these people play, right?" Like the TV yeah. experience, and they were talking about they they t- they had the same sort of thing when like 3D TVs were supposed right. to be a thing. Like, oh, whatever, people aren't going to actually go. Um, that's that's proven inaccurate. In fact, what's hilarious about it is it, it seems so inaccurate when I think about it because in esports in video games where you can literally you just watch it from your pc at home or your phone or whatever people are going to they're flocking to arenas in mass tens of thousands of them to watch a video like people play video games against each other yeah yeah like (laughs) rocket league championships or like there's a stadium full of people yeah i've seen it yeah it's wild (laughs) absolutely wild absolutely wild yeah well uh, okay if if you were on the spot and had to uh, pick uh, an EV today, right now, uh, which one would you get? Oh man, that's um, money. Not, not no no object. Yeah, no money. Money's no object. There's a correct answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a, is a cyber truck. The answer, Aaron. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, Sorry, you know, the, 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 the Rivians are pretty cool, honestly. And then and then I think. Um, the 
yeah, that new BMW looks looks nice too, right? The the new um uh what's the that? IX the new one. Yeah, yeah, that that looks pretty slick. Looks pretty nice. And then I think they've they've waited, right? Waited it out a little bit to to probably get you know to a good a good spot. So it's a little bit more competitive yeah. for uh, for Tesla. I'm curious so how probably many my two. they've sold though. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah. It's, I think it's still yeah, fairly fairly new. So those would be the two I probably would look at. And then Obviously, for the kids, you know the the new uh, the new uh, uh, Volt, right? Looks, I mean, it looks, you know, economical, right? I think from a from an EV perspective, if you're going to go that route. So for the kids, maybe something like that. I feel bad for the <laughs> for this generation, man. You're starting off driving, having to commute to work, and it's five dollars a gallon for gas. It's a little bit a little bit crazy. Yeah, right? tough. So, uh, so those are probably my my top three right now. I'm looking at at least from a from different spectrum. Nice. I actually haven't looked what into the, the answer very much. <laughs> what was the right answer, Aaron? Uh, the, the correct answer is the the Model X Plaid. But yeah. Okay. Got it's it. Fine. It's fine. But to be fair, I haven't looked at the IX that much. But uh, okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, Tesla's definitely okay. got a head start for sure. Yeah, definitely got a head start. I, I, I mean, I would entertain. There's there's one of the we went to the Tesla shop in. Uh, Palm Beach Gardens to kind of just check it out. So I mean, I'm not opposed, just uh, not necessarily. I don't know, maybe just the the cost and just some of the recent shenanigans going on with, with the company a little bit, a little bit crazy. Yeah, that's but the tech is cool though, definitely, definitely yeah, cool. Absolutely. Tech. Okay. Yeah. Um, last last urgent question that I have. Because it does, I, I'm concerned about this. It doesn't seem anyone else is concerned about this, and so I'm trying to find like-minded individuals. <laughs> All of these vehicles have a thousand horsepower out of the gate. <clears throat> Look at the Hummer, like yeah. even the just this massive ten thousand pound vehicle that can go zero to sixty in half a second, or whatever it is. Right? It's like you know whatever two point one. Crazy, seconds. yeah, it's insane. Is that concerning to you at all? Is it too much power for the the average individual? Like we all know that we are better drivers than everyone else on the road. And so when you look at everyone else on the road, does it concern you if they have a thousand horsepower beneath their foot? Nope. With all that torque. No? Okay. <laughs> They're already uh, death traps. I'm just yeah. saying how much power can one man have? Like this is just, this is crazy. It's getting loose. Well, I think the only thing, Aaron, for me would be you know, yeah, human interaction, I think, like Tyler said, I mean, the reality is we're already living in that world with people driving massive vehicles and drive crazy anyway. But I think the, the thing that would kind of be interesting to me is the is the autonomous side of that is if, <laughs> right, is it, it may be right. better, but at the same time, that's a little bit concerning too, right? If some of the, you know, uh, autonomy of driving in these huge, you know, vehicles that can, that have that much power would be a little bit intriguing if, if, Something were to go awry, but then again, probably not as probably not as bad as as humans are with uh, the way we drive. So, mm-hmm. uh, not really. As in I not would say no. Attention. Overall, no. Overall, okay. I'd say no. Not not too too concerned about that. Okay. Well, listeners out there, write to me on the show. Make me feel better about caring about <laughs> this, or just tell me to get over it. <laughs> Tyler, what else you got, man? Oh, I don't know. News this week. It's more sad, depressing, you know, yeah. ransomware and 
security breach and stuff. Layoffs. I did see, um, yeah, lots of well, gloom and doom is always right. It's uh, your the the bears in the market are predicting, you know, 132 percent of all crashes. Um, but uh, or what's what's the stat? It's like they pr- correctly predicted 300 of the last four um, recessions, right? Anyway, um, but no, I, I did see one article, uh, in the gloom and doom space that I thought was relevant and it, I guess a, um, a a site called, uh, SSN DOB, exactly what you'd expect that to stand for social security number, date of birth, uh, was seized by, um, us three letter agencies by the look of it. And, um, (laughs) it, it was seized, uh, after reportedly selling the personal information of 24 million people. How's that? (laughs) And it was just like, Oh, cause I mean, I, I feel like we, we knew this is happening. Um, (sighs) this is terrible. uh, I just typed it in. It's the top It's the top hit. I know you just go right to it. You just uh-huh. sign up. Want to buy a social security and, number, but don't know where? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so like the uh, the massive breach. What was that like seven years ago? Now it feels like an an a lifetime. But uh, one of one of the three reporting agencies, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I didn't want to drop names. But I, it was it was one of the E's. It wasn't TransUnion, so it was either Experian or. Um, this is why I didn't want to say it. I can't think of all three of them, and I'm probably forgetting the one that had the breach. But it, it was an absolutely catastrophically large breach of basically all personal information for adults in the United States. It, it The credit reporting agencies have all of it. They've got the social security. They have your address. They have the history of every vehicle you ever owned. And, and they had a massive 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 breach and it it's only a matter of time before all of that works its way out like we we almost just need a different system for verifying identity and making sure you can build credit and stuff like that like never mind blockchain side of i, I don't kidding. know i can't imagine that there isn't a technology that exists that is better than the social security uh system obviously yeah um this is a problem a we've done everything we can aaron that's it's a, right it's yeah, a big excel spreadsheet is. yeah it's a big oh excel spreadsheet the thing that i can do <laughs> uh it's Golly. just anyways i i saw that and i immediately thought like uh, should i go check and see if i own extra houses under my social no i don't i don't even want to know right like <laughs> it's just if you own extra I, houses. I, I, I just i don't i don't even want to know it's it, almost the roll of a dice at this point. Somebody just picks a number at random, and if it's yours, you're going to have a bad day. And then you get to pay to fix it for probably years. And you, I, that has got to go, man. I have not, thankfully. Tyler, but yeah. I've had what happened? Yeah, identity theft? And like your identity, yeah. identity theft? No. I mean, the worst you? thing that's happened to us is my wife um, having her. All her social, like her her Gmail, her Facebook, all that kind of stuff got oh, hacked. Geez. And it was actually Ooh. on the day of Tyler's wedding. <laughs> oh wow! Jeez. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Wow. I was getting dressed, yeah, ready to ready to walk out there, and got all the notifications. Yeah, we've just had kind of the basic stuff. Just you know, I think you go to a restaurant or something or whatever, and someone you know 
<clears throat> so when your credit card, which is interesting in Europe, you go to Europe and you travel, right? They they bring it, they bring the stuff out to your table when you're using your card, right? Which makes so much sense. Like they have the little, mm-hmm. yeah, little swiper thing, right? So they don't they don't take it and disappear and come back. So um, I think that's happened to us a couple of times, but that's that's basically it, you know, as far as that goes. So it can be frustrating for sure. Like you said, there's yeah. very extensive identity thieves out there that go the extra mile. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. and that's what I'm getting at. Like at this point, it's it's really almost just random whether or not your social is get what is what gets picked up because so many of them are out there. Um, so it just I don't know, feels kind of hopeless, but it is it is ridiculous. So I saw that in the news today, and I thought about that breach, and I thought about all of the other breaches that likely included stuff like social security numbers and your address and credit card information, stuff like that. And the only one that has any reasonable amount of protection to, to really just brush it off is the credit card side of it. It's like, get my name and my credit card number and they'll delete the card, refund me whatever you spent money on and send me a new card in 48 hours. But if they use your social security number to open a loan, it's like you have to go fight to prove you're you. And there is really no, like, it's just garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh geez. I think um, someone well, related here. Yeah. That, right? You can you can you can monitor your credit report, right? And see if <laughs> which which just means stuff, in real but... time you get to to find out that it's time to fight fight through <laughs> exactly. the garbage of, of doing right. like, it. Doesn't do it doesn't anything protect to protect you. you. Yeah. It just tells you you're screwed faster. You can oh, just call like, them. Cool, I guess, but oh. <laughs> just call the person. And say hey, hey just. You. You want me to co-sign? Is that, is that what you want? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the news today, uh, lady Paige Thompson, an ex-Amazon employee accused of stealing 100 million plus Capital One customer details, stands trial. Her lawyers say she was just a novice white hat hacker. So, yeah, apparently she downloaded data power. from more than 100 million Capital One customers. This was about mm-hmm. three years ago. Wow. One of the largest wow. data breaches in the U.S. She is uh, wow. standing trial now. Interesting. So, oh my gosh. Well, I thought I thought Aaron might pray out of time today, but I thought we would uh, talk about the legislation. I thought for the crypto industry might be a topic for a conversation. But I haven't. Oh man, I haven't. Uh, I didn't dive into that to see what it was really all uh, about. Yeah, I actually I haven't dug into it enough yet either. Um, yeah, been, we should probably do that and come back and talk other about updates. It. But yeah. Yeah, I saw, a, saw some of that in the in the news earlier this week. Yeah. What day is it? Wednesday? Yeah, I think it was like Monday, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, people talking about it on too. Capitol Hill. So I don't know if that's bullish or bearish. It's one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you took too long to laugh note. at that. I think we need to shut this down. <laughs> that brings another Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, we had a great time. Brandon, thanks for being here. Um, you brought Thank a lot you guys so much to talk about. Um, and your mic sounds amazing. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, <laughs> thanks. It was great. Thank no, you guys. We, we had a good time. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sharing with your friends. And we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye, man. <laughs>